Uh, why don't we just record the content warning right now? Because I'm probably not going to have it in me later. Yeah, sure. Okay. Hi, listeners of Pen Pen Pals. This is Blixa coming to you with a content warning for Ben Barefoot Gen. It's really heavy shit. This is a um, firsthand account of a survivor of Hiroshima. And we're going to get into some emotionally charged material, I think. So just be warned if this is not something you are feeling equipped to deal with today, then tune in next time and we'll be talking about Steins Gate. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome everyone to Pen Pen Pals. We are doing a movie this time. We're going to be talking about Barefoot Gen. Uh, I'm Alex. Hi, this is Blixa. And hey, it's Ben. We wanted to do this episode because Oppenheimer is all the rage right now. People are talking about it. People are are enjoying it from what I hear. I thought we were doing this because of Barbie. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Have we all seen Barbie? No, I haven't no, seen I either. Have either of you I seen it? I saw Barbie. I like yeah. Barbie. It's good. Yeah, I hear it's a fine feminist film. I have a date to see it on Wednesday. Oh, cool. And have have any of us seen Oppenheimer? I have no interest in that movie. Yeah, me neither. Like, I liked Nolan when I was growing up, and then I liked uh, his Dark Knight trilogy. But then, I don't know, when I became more politically aware, it lost its luster. And now his films, like, they are all pretty propaganda-y. yeah. The feedback I heard was that it was still pretty establishment politics. Yeah. So what I heard is that it it's really just about the Manhattan Project. Well, it does not go into the ramifications. Or yeah, the I mean, out, I think it's based fallout. on a biography of Oppenheimer. Like it, like it is just like telling the story of this dude who was crucial to the creation of the bomb and and kind of like that that process. I don't know. I think I'm gonna see it. I okay. you know I think maybe I'm a little less. A little easier in my like grading of stuff based on politics than you guys are and more just like i don't know if it's a good story it's a good story i do like that actor that plays oppenheimer oh mm. yeah cillian murphy uh a yeah. favorite of christopher nolan he loves to put him in his films yeah i like florence Pugh a lot i don't i don't know who that is she's one of the leads in midsummer oh okay oh, yeah yeah. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, Midsummer's great. That's another heavy movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a real good one. Okay, but uh we're we watched this film and wanted to discuss it as kind of uh not necessarily a counterbalance, but like an addendum to that kind of cultural uh, uh, focus that's going on right now. Because the film talks about, you know, the creation of the bomb. So I thought, hey, let's watch a film that focuses on the aftermath of the bomb, the actual effects of the bomb instead. And gosh, it did not disappoint. Uh, so b- before I go into gushing about what I love, what how did you two enjoy the film? Or let's go with uh, what's our history? Because this is my first brush with barefoot again is watching the movie uh so you two i if i remember correctly read some of the manga when you're younger so you kind of knew what you were going into yeah uh so when i was 13 there was an american publisher that released the manga in like american comic book form Mm. i don't think it was originally published colorized but what i saw was in color uh and it was pretty grim i did see the well i think there's two different animated features uh, but I saw one when I was 16 and decided that it was good, but I'd never watch it again. But my recollection was the manga had kind of like more disturbing imagery than the the animated film. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Because this did not disappoint on disturbing imagery. Yeah, yeah. So I had read, I think, black and white manga. I'm pretty sure just volume one. I I just went back and reread it. And, you know, like I remembered bits and pieces of it, but but I'm pretty sure it, it was only volume one. There's like nine volumes or something like that. Um, and volume one basically ends with the the dropping of the bomb. So it's maybe sort of like and and the brief aftermath basically up until um the the birth but yeah the the manga is much more political and i i don't know i think it's a lot more interesting um in sort of like like the moral questions that it it kind of like tackles so so you have sort of this brief speech in the movie from like the father where you know he's like we're losing the war i don't understand the point you know i think there's more courage in like standing up and like saying that but basically like the whole first book is about him standing up and saying that and then the people in the town calling them traitors and like the kids all get like bullied and you know then it's just I, it's it's yeah it's, it's this much more and you know and then the father feels like he's like oh am i making the wrong choice by like doing mm. what I think is right, but then like my family is getting unnecessarily like punished, like maybe like this isn't worth it. And I don't know, it's 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 much more anti-war <laughs> than than the movie even. Yeah, the movie seems to just be more like anti-atrocity. So like it it that it, it is totally missing from the movie. Like I didn't get the impression that uh, the dad talks a little bit with the son about the war and it not ending, but he nef- definitely never made a public statement and they didn't seem ostracized from the rest of the town. So that guy Pac in the movie, the neighbor who um, gives him the rice and stuff. So so I didn't get this based on his name, but I guess he's supposed to be a Korean. Um and so, like, he oh. talks about, like, you know, basically, like, he was captured by the Japanese imperialism and was, like, brought over and is sort of, like, working for the Japanese government. But, like, his family is still, like, back in Korea. And so he's, like, one of the only people that supports the father for being, like, this war is stupid. What are we doing? We'd all be better off with peace. And so, I don't know. It is, it is like, a very, <laughs> I think, like progressive uh progressive manga so yeah well i definitely appreciate that i i guess i do wish it had been in the anime film because i think we're probably going to get into this pretty quickly uh every time i uh the issue of hiroshima and nagasaki come up with uh westerners it eventually gets into like was the decision justified and um part of that narrative about like saving lives from a lengthy and brutal like ground invasion um you know it's based on this uh i I don't know if you'd call it a prejudice or something but this idea that the japanese people would fight to the last person i I guess i understand where that idea came from but it's just a theory and it doesn't have a lot of basis for it because like no people are like a monolith like that Mm -hmm. and what you were just talking about ben kind of proves the point here's this family that didn't conform to a political narrative that did catch on, but it wasn't integrated into like the beliefs of every single citizen of Japan. I mean, my own family is probably a good example of that too. There, we had Korean neighbors and it's not exactly a caste system like back then, but they were socially shunned and the only employment they could get was 
garbage collecting. Uh, and my mother was a rebel and befriended uh, their daughter who was getting bullied every day at school. And my mom was kind of tough. And like there was a popular boy that led a lot of the bullying and she punched him in the face <laughs> and uh, got the bullies to lay off. And she walked this girl home every day. And you know these, these family neighbors, they had certain benefits to the line of work that they had and helped my family because everyone was struggling. It was post-war, like reconstruction mm -hmm. era. And it was just this happy little pocket of their neighborhood. Um, but I did a lot of research for this um, anime. And I will confess, I found it overwhelming. And I'm mm. not going to be able to have a lot of sources to give anybody just because I might have just been too emotionally close to the material. Mm. And um, I guess I will rely on the two of you to be professional. And I would kind of like to just be a person that read a bunch of stuff and is sharing their feelings. Yeah. <laughs> but I am sensitive to like the woozle effect and all this other stuff that I don't, I don't like the idea of spreading misinformation. Wait, what's yeah. the woozle oh, effect? The what? Yeah. Oh, it's, you know, like, it's like telephone. Hmm. Like you hear something like a narrative, right. About like, say around Hiroshima and you hear it repeated enough times that it, like it's accepted as fact, which mm -hmm. like if you dig into it, it it doesn't have much of a factual basis. Right. Okay. So what um what generation was your mother or what time was she growing up in Japan? She was born in well, I don't remember <laughs> like 47. Okay. So yeah, my grandfather fought in the Pacific. And when he came home, his neighborhood was gone. It was destroyed in the firebombs. Yeah. Brutal. You know, you've heard the term reconstruction era, like quite literally building from nothing. Yeah. You know, like this is like the, the family culture where you eat every single grain of rice in your bowl because you grew up with that kind of, that level of scarcity. Yeah, similar in America to the, uh, the outlook of uh, people who lived through the Great Depression out of a sense of survival, not out of a sense of like greed or wealth or, or mental instability, just like you never knew where your next meal was gonna come from, so you better get every calorie you can. And I mean, yeah, and too, I mean, like, you know, they're not the same scarcity in the U.S., but sugar and meat and all of that stuff was rationed because that stuff was getting sent to the soldiers and you, know, you didn't have all the workers growing crops and stuff like that anymore. Yeah. I, I apologize if I'm going to be a bit meandering, but like when you guys say something, it inspires a memory that I feel like is relevant to the show. Uh, but like in this anime, the aftermath was very chaotic. You had like people sort of turning on each other or refusing to help because of their own desperation. Mm -hmm. Like those were some of the stories I grew up with, like whether it was like police or government people or organized crime, like everyone was in like survival mode. God, where the fuck was I going with that? Well, the, the bit about uh, food rationing really hits hard in this movie because, you know, everyone's looking out for food. Everyone's, they talk about ration cards. There are people standing in like block long lines just to get a bowl of soup. And they're so excited when the soup is thick enough that the spoon can stand up in the bowl or the yeah. chopsticks can stand up in the bowl, which meant it was hearty. But like, especially after the bomb, everything is so devastated that it comes down to rice. Rice is like the one staple that is still being found and distributed. And there's even the one scene where he like claws through charred bag after charred bag of rice and finds this treasure trove of rice underneath. 
you know, it's it, rice occupies a similar place, I think, in uh, Japanese culture that bread does in a lot of other cultures mm. as like not only a staple food, but almost a symbol of food, a symbol of things are going to be OK because we have this sustenance and we can always rely on it. Yeah. Whew. Sorry, it, it is really difficult for me to go forward. I keep remembering all these scenes and disturbing images and I just kind of get stuck on it. I mean when people were desperate for water and then just like falling into the rivers and canals. Oh, uh, and the, the whole, uh, the black rain and the mm-hmm. people finding water, but it was contaminated. And so they like, I think there was a line in there in the movie about like thirst being one of the most primal reasons to keep moving, even when everything else is shutting down. And so these like really desperate, you know, really hurt people uh, when they finally got a drink of water, they just died because mm-hmm. that was the last Im- hum- like living impulse that was keeping them moving forward. Just yeah. heartbreaking, but also just fascinating to think about. One of the things that's like just really hard to wrap my mind around is like no one knew about like the fallout, like just radioactive particles contaminating the area. Mm-hmm. So again, like a little with the research I did, and I will say, like, I do feel like the sources I found were reputable. It was like mm. the Atomic Energy Commission stuff that had been declassified and the Museum of Nuclear Science. It was those kind of things. Um, and that there was this idea that radiation illness wasn't real, that it was Japanese propaganda mm. to, like, get sympathy. Oh. Uh, and Leslie Groves even, like, denied that it was a real thing. And, and then eventually when like the truth did come out groves still like spun it and tried to say well radiation illness is like a very pleasant way to die uh, that was one of the quotes disgusting and sorry who's who's leslie groves leslie groves was the character i mean well the real person in charge of the manhattan project uh played by matt damon in the film oppenheimer oh so he's a military officer right Mm-hmm. He's who Oppenheimer and and Einstein and all of the uh, uh, scientists were reporting to. Yes, but also very political. Uh, and like, we're eventually going to have to talk about this anyway, so we might as well get into it. Like justifying the use of the atomic weapons. Leslie Groves was had a lot of anxiety about being audited by Congress because of the enormous expense of uh, Manhattan Project of what Oak Ridge and Hanford were costing to refine uranium and plutonium. And there was a memo saying that, uh, Ben, I'm going to mess it up, so you'll have to correct me. (laughs) Hiroshima was to justify Oak Ridge, and Nagasaki was to justify Hanford. And I might have those flipped, uh, because I don't remember which type of weapon was used on each city and what materials were found at each site. Mm -hmm. But uh, in modern dollars, it's like billions of dollars this program cost. And I guess that's where the political thing comes into it, because if that cost wasn't justified that would be the end of his career. Yeah, like under that, the logic they were working under, it wasn't enough to have it. They had to show the world that they had it. They had to, not just that they had it, that it worked. Yeah. So there, there's so many, like the, the social theory here, the narrative, there's so many flaws in it that my conscious demands that I scrutinize. Like, okay, so maybe they truly believed they needed to demonstrate some level of power to the soviet union well why couldn't they detonate the weapons offshore mm-hmm. yeah i mean i guess they would have the the film of los alamos already right mm-hmm. 
And then the other issue was, you know, this issue of like sparing ground troops for an invasion. Well, Japan, like, and this isn't just a theory, like they were ready to surrender. We could have accepted surrender, but it would have been conditional. It was unconditional surrender, which was their dilemma. And that's a political decision. That's Mm -hmm. people in power wanting a spectacle, wanting a leader to be broken in front of their people, which Mm -hmm. they still could have done after accepting conditional surrender. You know, the conquering army can make up any terms they want any time. You could have accepted conditional surrender, occupied their country, and then just said, well, no, you're going to have to prostrate yourself in front of this general. Yeah, this was definitely forcing uh, uh, the emperor's hand. And that happens in the film. The It's the first public address of a Japanese emperor ever or just in the modern era? Uh, I don't remember. I do know that it was called the Jewel uh, broadcast. I don't know why. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it was just the first time his voice had been radio broadcast. Ah, okay. I was curious about the reasoning for that. Like he's, you know, the leader of the country, but at this point he's like a figurehead leader, right? And had been for a long time, ever since the shogunate had taken over in like the Tokugawa era. Yeah. Uh, so this is kind of stuff that I discovered when we were re- researching Gundam, hmm. uh, like the political theater that inspired uh, Gundam the origin. Right. So like, again, this idea that like the emperor was God incarnate and the Japanese were the chosen people and the extension of the emperor's being, there were probably people that generally believed that much mm-hmm. like there's Americans who generally believe like the alt-right rhetoric, mm-hmm. but that wasn't part of the Japanese history for generations and generations. It was like what the conservative party manufactured and pushed in opposition to like an age of like uh, liberalism and progressive culture, like leading up to World War II. It was the hard pendulum swing. Fuck, I can't remember the historian's name, but they're talking about like, I think what you just referenced, Alex, like that there were like daimyo and shogun that like gave no fucks about the emperor and like used the emperor regularly as their own puppets. And that's certainly not someone you regard as like God incarnate. Um, And then just the nature of Japan itself, like pre-modernity, you're not unified by media to have this one monolithic belief. There's people all over the country that are different degrees of Shinto and Buddhism and local indigenous beliefs. Like where my family came from, Higashimurama, they had a different belief system that we know very little about because all the records we have of our legacy is gone. Oh, destroyed by those military uh, uh, leaders? Well, I mean, like firebombs and all that. Oh, okay. Militarily destroyed. Um, Mm -hmm. Still tragic. I don't know what is too much information. So like there was a site that had like a family shrine and during the reconstruction, uh, an American Christian school was built on its ruins. Oh, that's so oh. gross. That's a form of genocide to supplant someone's culture with another one. You can still see it on Google Maps. <laughs> Fucking boo. Okay, uh, uh, Ben, you you said you uh, reread the first the first volume of it, um, and then you did some research on, uh, was it the author or the people who made the film? Uh, yeah, so the the manga author is this guy, uh, Keiji Nakazawa. So he was born in Hiroshima. Um, he would have been like six when the atom bomb dropped. So he's sort of barefoot gen is kind of the stand-in for him. Um, and he actually, he first wrote an autobiographic version that was just kind of like his memories 
that came out in uh, Shonen Jump. Um, and I, I read a little bit of it. it. It kind of like goes pretty much straight into like the bomb dropping. You know, I don't think the mother is pregnant. I think that was something that they added for kind of like dramatic effect. But he was, I think, the middle child of, of five children. And then, uh, he, yeah, he started working on, I guess, that sort of autobiographic one. And then I think Barefoot Gen immediately after it. Oh, did that after his mother died, which I thought was sort of interesting. So I don't know if he mm. wanted to wait for her to to die before kind of delving back into all of these unpleasant memories, or you know maybe it was her death that sort of catalyzed him to think about this stuff and want to tell the story. But yeah, the the, the manga is pretty different. Um, so for one thing, there's another older brother character um, who. He's actually there's two older brothers. There's one who's of an age that he's like working in a factory, you know, making war machines of some sort mm-hmm. or kind of like industrial yeah. things. Uh, but I, I think it's like things for like battleships and stuff like that. And then there's a brother, an in between brother who's at an age that they like sent these kids off to the country. So they would be, you know, safe from the air raids, but I guess they were sort of old enough that they could like take care of themselves. And I don't know if they were supposed to farm or what, but, you know, it reminds me of the similar stories you'd hear about like kids from London and stuff like that. Like um, Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, I think is like kids who are getting sent off to the country to to avoid the, the air raids. Oh, yeah. So... What what you're describing was from the manga because it does sound very familiar. Yeah, yeah. So that's from the manga, and it's you know like so that kid who's like out in the country, then he gets there, and like you know the country people are resentful of like these city people mm. coming to live with them, and like don't want to share the food, and like you know he gets bullied, and then like they they run away and like run back to Hiroshima, and then get like sent back out to the country again, and then the the older brother then decides to volunteer for the air force basically because the same thing about the dad being called a traitor then like when something goes wrong in the factory they think that like he was like sabotaging the stuff because he's from this traitor's family and give him a ton of shit so he's trying to like clear the family's name by like volunteering um you know but the the dad is just like you're an idiot you're just like throwing your life away but eventually like supports him but then like you know he he gets where he's sent and like there's this like crazy drunk guy who like starts attacking him and it turns out that that guy's like a kamikaze pilot who's like if i cut your leg off then they won't be able to like send you make you into a pilot so i'm actually like saving your life and you know they talk about like i guess these pilots were part of the college educated class who was kind of spared from joining the army for a while but like towards the end of the war they were just like recruiting those people too and you know it's just like they're like yeah we're, we're gonna take the machine guns off of the planes and just strap a bomb to it and uh like it's just it's like extremely dark it's it's yeah it's sort of a little bit like catch 22 if you've ever read that where it's just like I don't know, like half of the characters are like crazy and just like everyone's in these like horrible situations where like no option seems like a good option. And 
and everyone's just like, why, like, why is this happening? Basically. So anyway, I'd, I'd, I'd really recommend the the manga to anyone who's like kind of interested, I guess, in this topic in general, or, or kind of once, um, once more after they watch the movie. So like, so the manga has been reprinted several times, um, depending on what edition you get, there's uh, like author's notes. Uh, so I do have an excerpt um, that talks about Nakazawa's real experience. Uh, I don't know if it's too long to read the whole thing, but I think some of it would be worth. Lay it on us. Read as, as much as you can take. Okay. I was six years old. I owe my life to the school's concrete wall. If I hadn't been standing in its shadow, I would have been burned to death instantly by the 5,000 degree heat flash. Instead, I found myself in a living hell, the details of which remain etched in my brain as if it happened yesterday. My mother, Kimio, was eight months pregnant. She was on the second floor balcony of our house, had just finished hanging up the wash to dry, and was turning to go back inside when the bomb exploded. The blast threw the entire balcony with my mother on it into the alley behind the house. Miraculously, my mother survived without a scratch. The blast blew the house flat. The second floor collapsed onto the first, trapping my father, my sister Aiko, and my brother Susumu under it. My brother had been sitting in the front doorway playing with a toy ship. His head was caught under the rafter over the doorway. He frantically kicked his legs and cried out for my mother. My father, trapped inside the house, begged my mother to do something. My sister had been crushed by a rafter and killed. was killed instantly. Um, it gets quite a bit more grim from here on. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a scene we get almost word for word in the film, and I assume in the manga. I had no idea that that part yeah. was autobiographical. Like I, I really <sighs> thought that that was dramatized because the one consistent thing in the movie, I think, above all others, is gut punches. Like it just keeps going. I know what I'm in for. I know it's a it's a tragedy, but like it couldn't get worse than this. And it just yeah. keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And that that scene more than any other sticks out in my mind where the they're all it's an impossible situation when Gen yeah. comes upon the house and tries to help his mother. And I guess it, it doesn't mention it there, but I and I wonder if it changed. Uh what kills me in my head is the dad telling them to leave you know he's like in this crisis situation he's probably going to die his children are going to die next to him but he has this pragmatic flash and he says you can't do anything you two have to go survive and that's like that's it like that's the best outcome of this horrible situation and it, uh, I don't know, will probably stick with me forever. Yeah, uh, I don't know what the significance of this is. So obviously the names were changed. A lot of the dynamics were changed for the manga, but mm. the name of the baby is kept the same, Tomoko. Mm. Um, in this um, author's notes, like it does say that uh, the baby lived for four months before passing. Uh, that's a lot of time to get attached. Yeah. For me, having my own children, like, these parts of the aftermath was, I think, the hardest. Maybe it was the fallout, not being able to produce milk, you know, seeing a child nursing on their dead mother. Mm-hmm. God damn, it was fucking horrifying. And this might be emotional reasoning, but like these decisions to use these weapons on civilian populations was a political decision. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's a crime against humanity. Mm-hmm. Not just watching the uh, this anime, but like the research, the the things that I've learned, I'm just like, fuck Harry Truman and fuck his advisors. Like they should have been treated like criminals. 
hundred percent. I, I mean, I definitely agree. I think too, it's just the the context of like all of the stuff that happened in World War II. I mean, like, I think we focus a lot on the atom bombs because mm-hmm. they were new, but, you know, there were like cities getting firebombed that had, you know, as many fatalities as, as Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And like, just <laughs> the whole thing through and through was just this massive horrible thing that affected huge parts of the world it's crazy to think back about yeah there's there is something missing from the the journalism so one of the articles it was in the uh the nuclear uh, museum archives visitation to ground zero was like strictly controlled by the military but there were american journalists that went uh and this one guy was saying that you know, he'd seen the aftermath of the firestorms of Tokyo, had seen Dresden, said, but nothing prepared him for like the magnitude of devastation of Hiroshima. And it mm. said like, out of all these war-torn cities, like he said, that disturbed him just seeing like what humanity did to humanity. But, you know, like the photo, the images that we have are <laughs> curated. They're, they're carefully protected of what was released to the public. That same journalist did say something horrifying. You know, while I was learning about all this stuff, I was kind of sticking to my conclusion when we covered Gundam the Origin that it's not necessarily like this people group or that people group that are horrible or to blame, that it's uh, like regimes and that like war itself as an entity is our greatest enemy, Uh, that there was an American administration and a military administration in Japan who were the enemies of humanity. Mm -hmm. But I guess war does things to people because this journalist talked about a football game being held at ground zero and Japanese women being forced to be cheerleaders for these American soldiers playing football. And you have to take some time to think about that to appreciate the disturbing level of this. You know, these would be women who have lost everything and just suffered existential trauma and who knows what came of them like being dressed up staying at ground zero like i'm sure everyone there died of some type of radiation illness related thing Mm -hmm. it's just too grim yeah and even if not immediately years later um i don't know if it's actually linked to hiroshima but i was just reading about the the author and he died of uh uh, complications on of lung cancer uh in 2012 yeah. So I, I do want to like make the point that I'm not absolving the Japanese government or the Japanese military. I do think they are every bit as guilty as anyone else involved in inflicting the world into this nightmare. Like mm-hmm. I desperately tried to find the source for this, but I couldn't. There was a documentary about Nagasaki on Funimation that I saw in 2018, and they were following some survivors. And the uh, occasion of the documentary was that there was a lot of military documents that had just become declassified. And one of these memos was the military seeing the LeMay leaflets, like warnings from American bombers about, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki being bombed. Uh, There's no evidence that those flyers reached Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but at least military intelligence had them. And they had two days to evacuate Nagasaki and decided not to do anything because they just didn't care. Mm. I don't know the exact words, but the sentiment was like, well, we've already lost like 37 cities or whatever. What's, what's another city. What's one more horrible. 
but yeah, we brought up the fire bombings, and I think that's an interesting and horrifying juxtaposition is that fire bombings in some ways during the firebombing, it's worse because, you know, a lot of people were just, as we see in the film, obliterated by the atomic bomb. Like some people, it's so fast. Like you wonder if there's time for the brain to register pain because Mm. you're just vaporized. You're just gone. Um, Whereas uh, a firebombing, like it can take minutes or hours. People are trapped under burning stuff. People uh, suffocate just because of the uh, lack of oxygen in the air. But the thing that turns it and makes it worse to me is uh, is the after effects, because it isn't just the bomb and the fire and the collapse of the city. It's that radiation. And that stuff I've been, you know, morbidly curious about it ever since I saw Godzilla as a young person, because that famously has these very evocative shots at the end, and I've probably brought this up before on the show, uh, uh, radiation burn victims, these these wards of people trying to recover from the attack of Godzilla, which is, you know, allegorical of the bomb itself, and uh, this children's choir singing over the back of it. And that, that juxtaposition is something that we have in this uh, film as well, I think, because the the thing that makes that scene so compelling to me is it, it's not just the destruction it is also that children's choir because we're seeing the destruction, but we're also seeing people taking care of those victims, trying to save them. And mm. here in this, especially with the baby, we see like in this horrible time, we there are these tiny little moments of transcendent beauty, of relief. Like there's the one mother who says, my child has already died, but I'm still producing milk. So please let me feed your child. Something that under normal circumstances, I don't think anyone would even consider because it's just so it's such a bizarre subject to broach. Right. But under this desperation, you can have a scene like that, which the movie is not happy. But I was very thankful to the makers of the film for including little things like that because it made it a little easier to get through the final parts of the film. Yeah, I I think that's something that happens a number of times in the manga too is like people that often are sort of reminded of their their humanity by gen and like kind of by these children just being children Mm -hmm. and then kind of giving these favors to the family even though it's you know even though the conditions are so harsh and their resources are so limited yeah, uh, uh, they're, the guy they steal the carp from, and when he finds out that it is for not really the mother, but for the baby, because she's not doing well, he changes his tune. You know, it was like, I, I thought back to Darling and the Franks, it's like the exact opposite, you know, like Darling and the Franks is all about the exploitation of the youth, whereas this very much was like, okay, if there's one thing we can agree on, it's that we shouldn't compound this trauma on the next generation. And you just reminded me of the, maybe my favorite part of the film is the miracle of surrogacy that happens. They lose the little brother Shinji. And then there's this other kid who looks like him, acts like him, blah, 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 blah. And they they take the time to have this scene where they are introduced to him and they they accept him into the home and they, or they offer really, and he he accepts their offer. But at first they make the mistake of, especially again, he calls him Shinji several times. And it's like, I we understand that that's kind of the miracle that's happening here of surrogacy of like someone filling a place, but it's not Shinji. 
Like as much as it feels like Shinji, you can't start calling him that. He insists on keeping his name, which I thought was very powerful. Have either of you seen In This Corner of the World? I have not. It's a, it's another Ghibli film that is kind of like the other side of the coin for Grave of the Fireflies. Ah. It focuses more on like humanity like in hardship. Grave of the Fireflies was very like hardship focused, but they, they do have that a similar scene where there's like a war orphan that's found and uh, a cruel mother in the story who lost her daughter is able to give this kid is like naked and they clothe her with the clothes that have, of the daughter she lost. And it's pretty powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's been a long time since I've seen Grave of the Fireflies. I remember really liking it. I remember it also being very brutal. So anyway, my, my memory of it is that, you know, for whatever reason, I think it tugged my heartstrings more or it like felt more compelling to me than this movie. Like I felt like this, like it's a very brutal movie, but yeah, I don't know. Like, like then some of the other narratives felt like a little bit like tight anime narratives where I didn't like necessarily like connect as much with like the characters as I wanted to, or felt like as like immersed in the, the actual everyday life. Do you guys know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like there's this tension between it being like sort of very like anime at some moments and then like hyper-realistic and, like, dark at other moments. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, There's kind of a dissonance in how the film is treating certain things. And I wonder if that's a byproduct of... I don't think this it's written for children necessarily, but I think it is written so that it is accessible to children. Yeah, I mean, this was a hard thing to watch and, like, prepare for for this podcast because I I really love looking at um, the aesthetic and artistry that goes into something. Um, but I just couldn't get my mind there. And I do know there were scenes, I guess, in Act One, Gan and Shinji, like running through the field and like the specifically the, the choreography mm. was like very shonen. But uh, yeah, I don't know. On some level, I felt crass thinking about like the aesthetics of this movie. Yeah. Uh, another stark difference in them, and I don't know how the ending of this film compares to the ending of the manga, because obviously that one is much more, the manga is much more comprehensive. It, it deals with more of the story, but this had ostensibly a happy ending, right? It's not like, oh my God, everything is good forever, but there is a sense of gaining something out of this horrible experience in a way that Grave of the Fireflies does not. If, if I remember Grave of the Fireflies correctly, very sad ending. Yeah. Ben, you'll have to help me out with this. Uh, the comic that I read ended with this like, fuck America kind of sentiment, which, you know, as a 13 year old, when I read that, I was just like, holy shit. I didn't know how to process that. So, so I only read the first volume of like nine volumes. I mean, the first volume in this is like, the ending is like the kid being born and either I think Gen is holding the kid up or maybe the mother is, but there's like flames in the background and it's just kind of like, you have to make sure to like, remember this so that like war never happens again. Mm-hmm. Sort of. So at least at that point in the story, it's, it's very like anti-war, but that I'm sure, you know, the story will cover the American occupation and that, you know, like, I think it'll be just as critical of like that authority and like all the 
the bullshit that <laughs> that the American government brings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, just to resolve this thought, like maybe the benefit of like the the reprinted volumes, you do get to have uh, Nakazawa's uh, perspective, like as it changes over time. Like the the author's notes that I uh, got this quote out of, it was much more just anti-war and not so much like pointing the finger at one group or another. I will say though, I don't know if I can read that stuff, but I I guess I'm still curious because like, again, uh, I know that Leslie Groves was put in charge of uh, like field hospitals outside of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And what the Japanese people were told was it was to treat the survivors of the atomic weapons, but it wasn't. It was just to study the effects of radiation poisoning as they died. Mm -hmm. And, you know, did... Did we know how to treat stuff then, or was that? Uh, I think they already knew about iodine tablets, but I don't, I'm not exactly yeah. sure. Well, the studies were for the benefit of American soldiers to find out how soon uh, troops could enter hmm. uh, an area that where atomic weapons had been used. And that was it. It's just military agenda. Jeez. Mm-hmm. So it is... A very dark film, mm-hmm. or I, I enjoyed it very much. Um, it was not an easy thing to watch, but I was really glad that the two of you agreed to talk about this. Um, and I was even more glad that you had some prior experience, so you had all of this perspective on it. Uh, and you know, just for us later, like Grave of the Fireflies, also a movie I'm very interested in revisiting. If you'd yeah. like to watch, it. maybe not. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll take a break. We're not doing it next. That's not happening. Yeah, we'll uh, see. Okay, maybe maybe that's just something I have to revisit on my own. I haven't seen it since I was like, I don't know, 13, 15? It was a little yeah, young. I, think, to see I that. think we watched it together, Alex, and Probably. like did not know what we were getting ourselves into, and then we're just. Oh like, my god, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, we were just like, oh, it's another. Is it a Ghibli film? Yeah. Yeah, we were like, oh, it's another Ghibli film. It'll be fantastical, and oh, yeah. oh no. I, I think it was similar to like Perfect Blue, where it was just like some anime that Alex's older brother had. And we're like, let's check yeah. this out. <laughs> oh my God, you reckless kids. Yeah. Well, that's, that's how you, that's how podcasters are born. You know? <laughs> oh, I guess. I like Cowboy Bebop. I'll watch this. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like Dragon Ball? Check out Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah. It's got a kid. Oh my God. Uh, ben, uh, in your time in Japan, did you have a chance to visit Hiroshima or Nagasaki? I, yeah, I did. Um, and I'm trying to think they they make like a note of it in the, in the manga. I'm trying to think if it if they show it in the anime. But there's this kind of famous building that has this domed roof. That's one of the the few structures that survived. And mm. one of the other sort of ghastly things there is um, they left kind of this there's this sort of shadow from the blast where someone was standing in front of this building and you see like the char marks around the, the silhouette um, of their body. I think there's a museum there too. That's supposed to be amazing. When I visited, I think it was closed, but uh, it was very interesting, but I think, I don't know. It's hard for me to make the connection from just kind of like, seeing the old building to to the reality of it i think actually something like this anime Mm -hmm. or or like the stories to me i think are like more impactful than like the sort of physical remains i guess 
Mm. But I, I remember, you know, I had, a, I had a coworker from Hiroshima and I, I remember just sort of feeling like awkward and like, I don't know, like in my head, I like imagine anyone from there <laughs> would like hate all Americans, which, you know, I don't think is the case, though, though I had that same thought while I was watching this again. And I was realizing I was like, there are parts of the U.S. I think of as like being more racist or like xenophobic. And I was curious, you know, like if that is true in Japan and, and kind of what their the regions are. <laughs> but I uh, I felt a little weird when I was visiting Hiroshima and like having to tell people I was an American and kind of explain mm. why I was there. But um, my aunt, who was a missionary in Japan for a long time, a Mennonite who would serve a pacifist church, she really mm. urged me to visit while I was there. And I think she's Aww. sort of in the school of like Americans need to witness this stuff and like think about it more than we do. And, and you know, I, I heard that as a criticism, I think from your guys' perspective of of Oppenheimer, of just sort of like this would be this opportunity that you could show some of the footage that Americans don't grapple with that much. Yeah. And I believe what they do instead in the movie is you just see the the actors faces as they're watching the footage and it's sort of like this long shot of their uh, reaction to it which i think i think that's also an an interesting artistic choice too to sort of leave <laughs> it to people's imaginations in some way or yeah but but you are sort of <laughs> you're centering that the the white dude <laughs> the mm-hmm. white dude's emotional experience to this thing as opposed to maybe the the tragedy itself Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I was really curious about how the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are taught in Japan. Uh, I joined like a Japanese, like Friends of Japan Facebook group and asked the question. And a lot of people said like they're taught nothing. Uh, one person went to like a prestigious school and, you know, they cover World War II, but then they get to the unit about the atom bombs and they just skipped it. Oh, wow. Uh, and they asked the professor why they were skipping it. And the professor said, well, it's not going to be on the test. Like the school doesn't require us to be tested on it. So don't worry about it. Then there was testimonies about like uh, survivors of Hiroshima coming in to speak to the school and um, that their stories were just almost incoherent because they were so severely damaged. Mm-hmm. And that uh, the faculty would just say, you know, the, the point is war is bad. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's, that's our takeaway. I had to really wonder about like the purpose of our covering Barefoot Gen, but I guess I'm I'm glad that these things exist so that we can like talk about it and examine it. I can't remember who said this to me, but like it's good to visit the Holocaust Museum, but you don't want to live there. Mm. It's it's good to look at this and ask some hard questions, but ultimately like maybe focus on life. Oh, yeah. We'll all need some decompression after this. But what you say, Ben, about the Oppenheimer, the artistic choice of leaving it up to people's imaginations. I, I'm usually a big proponent of that, especially in like horror films and things, because I think, I don't know, people's imaginations are amazing. And we come up with things that affect or scare us or whatever, like far more efficiently than any outside artist could. But this film particularly, I have never seen such stark depictions of the damage to human bodies from the the bomb. And like, I know that some of that had to be 
their imagination, artistic imagination, but like when it happens, it's pretty realistic and the shots last for so much longer than you would think. And yes, we should not live in that space either, but that's what I think is missing from Oppenheimer. You know, you can say the human cost of like how many millions of people or how many thousands of people died in the initial blast, but like numbers, when they get it to a certain amount, we start disassociating. You know, like we we because you you just can't imagine that kind of carnage. And so these depictions of an individual death, I think, are very powerful and and stick with people. Uh, and it's and it's worth, as you said, visiting uh, uh, Blixen. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Like, I, I guess what gave me a real sense of magnitude from Barefoot Ken was the trucks filling up the bodies and the tugboat oh. like piled high. And I guess like the reality is in the details, you know, like Gen is spending the first night after the bomb and like structures have been blown over and pinned people. And then the fires are spreading and the whole night you just hear screams coming from fires. Uh, and then the next day, like the mom comments about the smell God damn, like that was real. Like mm -hmm. it just, it really messes me up. Yeah. yeah. I guess the question is like, what do we do? Like, okay, so there were advisors that fed misinformation to Truman to absolve his conscience to like make these decisions. But like, okay, so these things come out and like people get condemned. How do you prevent that from happening again? I mean, the hard answer is overthrow the government, but that that's easier said than done. Uh, you can always I mean, a I think a, a concrete thing people can do is to uh, become part of maybe a protest group or some sort of active political group that either that I think I don't know when I was growing up, it didn't seem like there were many of them around or they were marginalized. And in like especially like the 60s, there seemed to be a lot and 70s, there seemed to be a lot of movement, uh, popular movement in this country protesting, you know, like uh, uh, especially nuclear, nuclear weapons and war. Um, I guess, Ben, you your your parents did take us to a uh, anti-Iraq war protest, I think, or maybe it was Afghanistan. Uh, which was very that's an experience that really stuck with me. But that that's the only concrete thing I can say to like the everyday person who's not in a position to actually affect these things. Yeah, I mean, I do think like telling these kind of stories probably is important. You know, it's sort of the, mm -hmm. you know, the whole never again thing with the Holocaust. And, and you know, I think literally the the manga anyway sort of ends with that sort of we need to remember this so that we don't do it again whether that actually uh, translates to the people making decisions. I know Steve, Steven Pinker has become sort of a controversial person, but he wrote this book, Are Better Angels, that basically, you know, he tries to look at levels of violence and stuff like that over time from basically the start of history until now. And, you know, he sort of shows this like decrease over time within this like blip, which is like World War II, um, where we all went crazy and like did tons of horrible stuff. I don't know. I know the US was involved for four years, but I don't know how long the whole conflict lasted. And I think for the most part, you know, things still are getting better that, you know, there, there are still wars, but they, there are fewer of them and they're smaller and they're generally less lethal and have fewer collateral damage to civilians, but there's nothing to stop us from all 
going crazy and getting ourselves into some situation where things like that happen. And, you know, there's the forget if it's an Einstein quote, right? But, you know, I, I don't know what weapons World War Three will be fought with, but World War Four will be fought with a rock or whatever. Yeah, sticks and rocks. Yeah. yeah. So never again, like I grew up hearing that thinking, oh, that means genocide or atomic weapons. Uh, that feels like a half measure. Like, I feel like never again should we let let people into power who just have political motivations rather than the good of humanity. Mm-hmm. But here we are. Yeah, it's rough. And there, there, there may not be any easy answers to the solution. But one thing that I think we can learn from Gen is that even in your darkest hour, it, it, it may seem like there's no light at all, but we keep trying. We keep trying even if it's just the person next to us, we're trying to help them. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, hopefully there is something to that better angels that it it is getting better over time. And if we can overcome, you know, climate crisis and, and, and some other things like that, we really do have a brighter future for uh, not just a few people, but the majority of people, hopefully all people in the future. And I guess that's what it is. The the one thing we can do, and this is so abstract and feel good, but I think it does apply, is we can keep trying. We cannot give up. Like the wheat. And the important part about reminding ourselves about this is because it gives us that motivation to keep trying in our darkest hour. Yeah. And I guess that is that's the full circle for the movie, right? And maybe it is once you get to the end of the the manga, I don't know, right? But it starts with the dad talking about the wheat and how yes. the wheat emerges at the coldest, darkest time of year and you can trample on it, but it grows back and the kids have to be like the wheat. Yeah, the kids have to be like the wheat and and he he kind of is at the end. There's that wonderfully simple symbol of the the battleship that Gen has constructed for Shinji and mm-hmm. Shinji and him they never got to launch it and like Gen wasn't that interested in launching it he he was interested in making it for his brother but the 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 surrogate brother he he sees it and gets excited and so they take the time to do this thing in remembrance of Shinji in remembrance of the rest of the family but also it's an interesting thing, I think, that they just launch it. And that's the end of the film is is a long credit sequence with this this boat going down the river with all of these. I think they're supposed to be like stylized candles, maybe like representing all of the people we lost. But like Shinji wouldn't have let go of that boat, right? It's It's only in this situation that you're able to like, they did it symbolically, but they also are trying to let go of some of that pain, which just ugh, resonates with me. Mm. So the theme is wheat. The theme is wheat. Brought to you by General Mills. <laughs> Our new sponsor. What is, yeah, I don't know. And I mean, maybe the wheat is better for the metaphor, but, you know, we talked about like the rice earlier and I don't know, mm. it is sort of interesting that it is wheat. And I think, you know, America can be America in Japanese, but it's also beikoku. And I think the kanji you use is wheat. So I don't know if there's... Oh, no, don't, don't, (laughs) don't make that correlation. I I guess the kanji also means rice, but, but they call us like grain country, basically. That's like, ah, okay. One of the names for the U.S., I guess, because of our, our fields of amber wheat. So, 
Okay. Yeah. I, I think I was seeing like the weed and, you know, like the hair growing back and stuff as sort of like the, like the resilience of life, the like, you know, life finds a way kind of, which I think, I don't know. I mean, like World War II was uniquely brutal, but I think it's like very easy to forget in general, just like kind of how horrific by modern standards, most of human life was for all of humanity, you know, like 50% infant mortality rates, you know, like, I don't know, just tons of abuse and violence and stuff. But, you know, people still, I don't know, sometimes I struggle. I'm like, well, did people find, manage to find happiness and like this willingness to live under those like harsh conditions? Or did sort of like no one knew any better and just, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like it just sort of happened and everyone was miserable all the time or something. Right. But like, I don't know. I, I think, I think people probably still manage to find happiness in, in horrible situations. And like, you think that that should somehow let you find happiness today. I don't know. I don't think it helps as much as it should to think of just like how good we have it compared to like people a thousand years ago. We should have we should have ended on wheat. That was that was kind of dark then. <laughs> like, you know, what's the well, point of life? You know. <laughs> well, these people find happiness the same way I think humanity has always found happiness, and it's the way they find happiness at the end of the story. They find happiness through a symbol and ritual and each other. So they, you know, this the boat and the wheat. They're not just a boat and wheat. They are a symbol of what we continue to be, what we have lost, uh, the way we want to conduct ourselves in the future. The ritual of cast, you know, of raising the wheat, uh, uh, the ritual of casting the boat into the river uh, and then also doing it all together, because I think the mom is there, too. When they mm -hmm. they launch the boat, it's not just the brothers. I think that's how you find happiness is not through wealth or, or even prosperity. It's by recognizing each other's humanity. Yeah, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but but I do something to lighten this conversation. <laughs> no, it's good. I think that's, I think that's, I think the wheat and I think, you know, the happiness metaphor, I think that brings us to a good place here. So is yeah. that okay? Do we get to have a, a bright ending or or do we have more to say on this i feel like i'm in a pretty good mood now okay this depressed the fuck out of me for two days yeah mm. yeah me too i was really looking forward to this conversation because there was a lot of thoughts and and energy that i really needed an outlet for so mm -hmm. if nothing else thank you both for being here for to yeah. be that outlet for each other um I, I do want to plug i think you can find the the manga for free um if you google archive.org um, Barefoot Gen, they have it like in their library. Um, there's one that's just the first volume and then there's another one that's like all nine volumes. So if you're interested, that's definitely a way to check it out. And I guess the movie um, is on YouTube, I think is a dub and a sub. So yeah, obviously, if you were really into this, uh, Grave of the Fireflies is a, a, a good companion piece. In this corner of the world. Yeah. There's an anime Azumanga Dayo that's just like super light and fluffy. It's got a kind of a cult following. If you want something that's not dark and dismal. Or you could listen to Ben's podcast, <laughs> uh, Algorithm. It's really light and fluffy. Yeah. yeah. It's great. 
Okay, cool. We'll mix it whenever you're ready. All right. Pen. Pen. Pals. Be, Be like, like wheat. wheat. I love it.